When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being so much more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 168, and it's about salt. Salt in Tudor England. So we're going to talk about that. But first, I want to remind you that the crowdfunding campaign for the 2022 Tudor Planner is on now. You can sign up and support the printing costs for the planner. I'll have a link in the show notes. So if you want to have an organized life in 2022 that's also filled with Tudor history, you need to support the Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign because It's the only way you're going to guarantee that you get your copy. I had to write a lot of emails to disappointed people last year when we sold out. And I don't like doing that if I don't have to. So uh, make sure that you hop on to the Indiegogo site to grab your copy if you want one. Second, TudorCon tickets are officially sold out. Done. But... That leads me back to the Indiegogo because I do still have some spaces reserved for people who support the Indiegogo that you can come to TudorCon as one of the perks at one of the two of the higher levels. So there is still a way potentially to come to TudorCon. So October 1st through 3rd, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, three days of Tudor insanity and great fun will be had by all. So I want to tell you a folktale now. There was a king. He had three beautiful daughters, and he asks them each how much they love their father. The eldest says, I love you as bright as the sunshine. The second daughter says, I love you as wide as the ocean. The youngest one says, I love you as much as water and salt. And the father was like, that's a weird reply. And because this is a folktale and folktales are weird, He sentences her to death because why not, right? So her two sisters, because they would like to save her, because they love her, they gave a small dog and one of the younger sisters pieces of clothing to the executioners. And they cut off the small dog's tongue because, again, this is a weird folktale. 
And they show that to the king and they say that's the tongue of his daughter. And really, they the executioners put the daughter in a cave and told her to stay there. There's like echoes of Snow White in this too. So then she's found in the cave by a wizard, because why not? And he takes her into his castle, which is across from a palace. And another king, his son, falls in love with her. And they decide that they're going to get married. And then there's the day of the wedding. And the girl, the daughter, gives salt and water to everybody except for the king, her father, who clearly doesn't recognize her again because it's a folktale. When asked why he's not eating, he explains that he's not feeling well. And after the meal, everybody tells stories and there's great entertainment had by all. And the king tells the story of the daughter that he executed. He's so very sad that he executed her. But then the princess puts on the same dress that she had on when she told him that she loved him as much as water and salt. And she tells him how hard it is to eat anything without water and salt. And he realizes just how much she loved him all along. And they hug and all is forgiven on both sides. Because, yeah, I'm clearly going to give forgive a father who sentences me to death because he didn't like how much I loved him. Again, it's weird. But it's a folktale that is in a lot of cultures, which demonstrates the importance of salt. Shakespeare actually echoed this folktale later in King Lear when Cordelia doesn't give Lear the answer that he's looking for and he banishes her. So even Shakespeare jumped in on this particular kind of folktale story. But salt is very important. And this folktale came down through the ages to demonstrate just how important salt is to us and to life. In the British Museum, in the Wadston Bequest Gallery, they have an item, Henry VIII's Royal Salt Clock is on loan. It's a combination salt cellar and table clock. It's about 30 centimeters tall. It's made of gold. It's got jewels like rubies and garnets and pearls decorating it. There's also miniature cameo sculptures around the sides, these three-dimensional sculptures that stick out. And it was likely made in Paris by the royal goldsmith there, Pierre Mangeau, around 1530. And it was likely a gift from Francis to Henry. And it would be on the table during a banquet. This beautiful salt cellar. A salt cellar is kind of like a salt shaker. It was a, sort of like a sugar bowl, but you'd keep salt in it. And um, so it was this beautiful item to, to hold salt in and to serve salt from, which was also this golden clock. Such a beautiful item. I'll have a picture of it on the show notes at uh, englandcast.com slash salt. And you can imagine it on the table during a banquet surrounded by candlelight and glittering in, in the candles and showing off just how valuable this beautiful golden item was. And because salt was a valuable commodity, the closer you sat to this gorgeous item, the more important you were. And in fact, there was a saying that important people sat above the salt to signify just how important they were. Henry VIII had 11 salt cellars in his inventory, 11 salt cellars. But the only one that still exists is this particular one I'm talking about, which is now owned by the Goldsmiths Company. So salt has long, long been valuable. Ever since ancient times, entire cities were built where there were salt mines like Salzburg. Salt's earliest stories and origins come from China, but Europe was no stranger to the importance of salt both in flavor and in preserving the food. So the Romans valued salt so much 
that we still use words today that they first created to demonstrate how important salt was. So, for example, Roman soldiers were sometimes paid for their work in salt. That amount of salt that they were given for their work was a salary. Also, Romans enjoyed putting salt on vegetables. They said it added flavor to it. And early cookbooks talk about how wonderful it is to put salt on cabbage, for example. That term that they used, the salt on the vegetables, was called a salad. So, you see, we still use these words that the Romans gave to us. And when I say these things about the Romans giving us things, I immediately go to Monty Python in the life of Brian, where they're sitting around planning their, their uprising, and they say, yeah, what have the Romans ever given to us? So, oh, well, there's the roads. There's the roads, definitely the roads. Oh, okay, but besides the roads, what have the Romans given to us? Mmm, crime. Remember what the city used to be like, Reg. Okay, so beyond the roads and the crime, what have the Romans done for us? <laughs> and so if you do not know what I'm talking about, you need to immediately go onto YouTube and look up that scene from The Life of Brian. And I shall continue now for a few moments talking about what the Romans have given to us. So when the Romans first arrived in southern England, they discovered the Britons. King of the Britons, see another. Monty Python. I am Arthur, King of the Britons. I should really call this show the Renaissance English History Podcast with bits of Monty Python sketches thrown in. But there we go. They discovered the Britons making salt by pouring brine on charcoal and then scraping off the crystals that would form. Now, the Romans had a different way for making salt, which is pan evaporation, and they built salt works in Essex to support the new town that they had founded on the Thames, London. So they built these salt works right away to help support London. That's how important salt was. As they explored their new island that they were conquering further, they heard about a place that the locals called Black Pit in what is today Cheshire. And this had been producing salt for centuries in the presupposed Roman way. So they actually, the Britons, did know the Roman way of creating salt. People closer to London chose to use this brine method. Anyway, the Britons in Cheshire had been using this method since about 600 BC. So the Romans settle in. They built salt works in Cheshire. Nearby in North Wales, there were silver mines, and the Romans would, of course, mine that for silver. That would leave lead left over, which they would use to make very large pans, some as much as 300 pounds which they would use to boil brine to make their pan-evaporated salt. The Anglo-Saxons built on this history, and they built towns around the salt works in the area. So if you happen to live in a town in England that ends in witch, like Norwich, Droitwich, or Middlewich, congratulations, you live in a salt-producing town generally associated with a brine spring. The Anglo-Saxon word for these mine springs was witch. In fact, Middlewich, Norwich, and Droitwich are known as the three Domesday witches because of their inclusion in the Domesday book. The salt was taken from the Midlands on the River Mersey to the Irish Sea, where in 1207, King John gave permission for a town to be built at the end of the river in this very deep, protected harbor, which is now Liverpool. The port of Liverpool became incredibly important for taking salt out of the Midlands and shipping it to the rest of England and even to Ireland. William Camden is the chronicler known for his Britannia, which was the first chronological survey history of Great Britain and Ireland. 
1580, he wrote of Middlewich. From thence runneth Waver down by Nantwich, not far from Middlewich, and so to Norwich. These are the very famous salt witches. Five or six miles distant, where brine or salt water is drawn out of pits, which they pour not upon the wood while it burneth, as the ancient Gauls and Germans were wont to do, but boil it over a fire to make salt thereof. Neither doubt I that these were known unto the Romans, and that from hence was usually paid the custom of salt called the salarium. For there went a notable highway from Middlewich to Norwich, raised with gravel to such a height that a man may easily acknowledge that it was the work of the Romans, seeing that all his country over, gravel is so scarce. And from then at this day, it is carried to private men's uses. Mather Paris writeth that Henry III stopped up these salt pits when in hostile manner he wasted this shire, because the Welshmen, so tumultuous in those days, should not have any victuals or provisions from thence. But when the fair beams of peace began once more to shine out, they were opened again. Beneath this southwards, the little river Croco runneth also into the Dan, the Croak, the river aforesaid, being past Brereton, within a little while visiteth Middlewich, very near unto his confluence with the Dan, where there be two wells of salt water parted one from the other by a small brook. Sheaths, they call them. The one stands not open, but at certain set times, because folk willingly steal the water thereof, as being of greater virtue and efficacy. So you see, he wrote a whole several pages all about these towns and salt wells and salt water wells and how people made salt and where people made salt and the history of where people were making salt in that area. So Super important. People used salt mostly for preserving food during the winter, but you needed a lot of it. One recipe from 1305 from the Bishop of Winchester's household, there's a recipe for butter, which called for a pound of salt to be added to every 10 pounds of butter. After you salted the food, you would then have to unsalt in it to eat it. With the butter, for example, you would add fresh butter to the salted butter, to a bit of the salted butter, so it kind of evened itself out. And with vegetables, you would soak them in water for a few days before you ate them. Another important port in England was Bristol, which imported French and Portuguese sea salt, which was used for salting fish. The English production of salt was just unable to keep up with the needs of the British salt fisheries. Even after Henry VIII broke with the Roman church, the fast days continued, and throughout the 16th century, people who ate flesh during Lent, so beef or you know any kind of flesh other than fish, they would be continued to be punished even though England was no longer Catholic. Uh, they were punished with three months in prison. By the 16th century, in addition to the French and Portuguese salt, there was cheap salt coming down from Scotland. They would use cheap coal to evaporate seawater in iron pans and then get the salt from that. In the 1560s, the British fisheries were struggling a little bit. We talked about that a little bit in the Iceland episode I did earlier this year, talking about the British fisheries around the North Sea and into Iceland. And Elizabeth wanted to help to protect the British fishing industry. 
So first, in 1563, she actually considered a proposal to add Wednesday to Friday as a non-meat day. So Friday was always a non-meat day, and they wanted to add Wednesday as well, which would also help to build up the fleet of ships used for fishing. This was important with the threat of invasion coming from the sea. This proposal was actually debated for 22 years. And finally, in 1585, it was deemed just too unpopular. So they finally tabled it after 22 years of debate. Later, Elizabeth wanted to try to copy the Scottish way of making salt. And she granted a patent for the use of new types of iron pans. And this was going to give a market advantage to the Tyneside Salter Salt Works over the imported salt. The plan was unsuccessful at first, but Elizabeth and then the Stuart administrations would make repeated attempts to stimulate the coastal salt making so that all of the English salt needs would come from the English and Scottish sources only. They wanted to stop importing the French and Portuguese sea salt. And by the 17th century, this involved negotiation with the Salters Company, which had been joined by the salt traders in the main east and south coastal salt towns. In 1682, a merchant called John Collins wrote a book called Salt and Fishery, a Discourse, which you can read online at the Internet Archive. I have a link in the show notes. But the table of contents includes chapters like the several ways of making salt in England and foreign parts, the character and qualities of good and bad, and these several sorts of salt, English refined, asserted to be much better than any foreign. Chapter three was the catching and curing or salting of the most eminent staple of fish for the long or short keeping. Chapter four was the salting of flesh. Chapter five was the cookery of fish and flesh. Chapter six was extraordinary experiments in preserving butter, flesh, fish, foal, fruit, and roots, fresh and sweet for long keeping. Chapter seven was the case and sufferings of the salt workers. And then the last chapter was chapter eight, proposals for their relief and the advancement of the fishery, the woolen, tin, and diverse other manufacturers. So this guy, John Collins, was really interested in salt and the history of salt in England. And this is one of the earliest kind of history books about salt in, in the British Isles. Like I say, it's, it's free to read on the Internet Archive. I'll have a link. And he writes recipes that he learned of how to salt various types of meat, various types of fish. But he does have a section on how to gather salt, how to harvest evaporated salt. And it's called Of Salt Upon Sand Embodied by the Sun. Where the sun shines hot and the tides vary but little, tis easy to have salt enough, as they have in many places of the straits. With salt of the like kind, made near Smyrna, beef at midsummer hath been extremely well preserved in the manner following. So now he talks about how to preserve beef. And this, of course, was not just a 1682 recipe. This is how they would have been doing it during Tudor times as well. The ox hath been killed one day and cut into pieces and salted the next. The salt hath been beat very small, and the beef being well rubbed therewith, it was footed or pressed into a cask with sprinklings of salt between each lay, in which condition it was permitted to stand for 48 hours, for close packing made the blood to arrive above the meat, which was poured off, and then a brine was made of fresh water, and salt as strong as might be sufficient to cause 
the salt to dissolve, which it will not if too little water be put in. Then the meat was washed in this brine and well salted again as before. Then the cask filled up with the brine aforesaid. This was imparted by Mr. Richard Norris, an ancient, experienced master or mate who now teacheth navigation and mathematics in Crutched Friars, and saith he often has seen it so done and none of the meat stunk. So there you go. That's a recipe for salting your beef so that it doesn't stink. I don't eat beef, so I'm not going to use that, but you might. And so please be my guest. So that is it for this week. That's our little journey into salt. The book recommendation is Mark Kurlansky's Salt, A World History. I have a link to purchase in the show notes at englandcast.com slash salt. Let me know what you thought about this episode. You can always get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016 Tesco or join the Tudor Learning Circle, which is a free social network just for Tudor history nerds. Remember to get your Tudor planner through the Indiegogo. There's about a week left on it, so you don't have a lot of time. And that's also how you can get a TutorCon ticket now as well. So I have a link to that in the show notes too, or in the description of this podcast below. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you are having a wonderful May. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Blow, northern wind, send for baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hote burd in Bauerbrieg, at soli semlis on Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.